Welcome to the first episode of Ecumen Presents, and this week we're looking at Lesson 1 of the Baltimore Catechism 3 by Father Cannell. So uh, this version that we're looking through to kind of break down for you guys uh, was first uh, published around 1949, I believe, and uh, there are 38 lessons we're going to go through, and Lesson 1 today, we're going to talk about the purpose of man's existence. And uh, this is a really fun question for people who love to be philosophical, uh, and the, they're always going to talk about, what is the meaning of life? It's pretty, pretty easy. Um, three letters, starts with G, ends with D, God. That, that, uh, what the Catholic faith teaches um, for how to be a, a good Catholic, how to be a Christian, how to follow Christ, how to be virtuous. In the end, we're going to learn here how to follow God. I want to make sure that it's important to note here when we're talking about the Baltimore Catechism itself, that the Baltimore Catechism is an Americanized version of Robert Bellarmine's small catechism. Um, Robert Bellarmine, for uh, any of you guys who are uh, in a Bellarmine, if we're going to pronounce it correctly, uh, he was an amazing Jesuit. And I know Jesuits nowadays can leave a lot to be desired. However, uh, Bellarmine, uh, amazing theologian, had done a lot of work on the end times, a lot of work looking at the papacy and uh, impacts of good and bad popes, uh, as well as he completed Lapide's biblical commentary for anyone who wants to read it. But taking then all of his work that he had done abbreviating a catechism, translated into English, and here we are now, uh, basically, the, what is it, the, it was translated around the end of the 19th century, so the catechism we're working from is about 50 years out from that, um, when, in all seriousness, Catholic, Catholic teachings or Catholicism was much more widespread than it is today. So know that's kind of the context in the background. So if these things sound different to you or weird and you didn't hear them in RCIA, uh, well, uh, hopefully we can educate you and enjoy it and uh, ask questions below. Like I said, if there are things we bring up that are unique, we'll try and make sure the sources are actually in the description uh, below the video. So uh, question one here that we're looking at is, who made us? So God made us. So this is not the uh, lightning striking the mud and us having this faith in this one in a bazillion chance that maybe something happened with these weird cells of things and it just starts to multiply and then billions of years later we're evolving to become people now. No, God made us perfect at the beginning. So when the creation story ends in Genesis, God made everything and it was good. The root of the word good, by the way, is God. So God's not going to make anything half-baked. He's not going to pull the uh, cake halfway out of the oven and it's going to drip all over and make a mess and it's going to taste like garbage. No, he, perfect. Everything he made was exactly like it was supposed to be. And we can see this in Genesis in terms of uh, looking at the creation story in Genesis 1, and the apostles all acknowledge it later uh, in the book of Acts. So I think it's important to remember that everything we're doing is for God because he created us, everything that we're surrounded by, all, you know, what God gave to us and how he created it. Brian? Uh, this is yeah, not... No, a, uh, no primordial. No, not at all, no. <laughs> no primordial is. Yeah, it's... Because even then, you still need a spark of life, and that's the piece of science that... Uh, I never struggled with this question. I, I think even prior to my Catholic days, I just in, intuitively know that God exists or something exists, and 
whether much later on was presented as intelligent design or, or God, just nominally speaking, uh, I knew it to be true. But e- even children can, can see the truth in all things, because God is presented as truth even in nature. And, um, you know, whether you look at the, uh, the mathematical possibilities, like let's say you entertain evolution even for a second, and there, believe me, there are many other people more eminently qualified to discuss this uh, more than me. Um, but just rationalize it out. It's, okay, well, if things evolve, well, there has to be failures mathematically. You can't just hit the, the Powerball every single new iteration of an organism. can't be a winner. So there has to be trillions and trillions of failures somewhere. Six eyes, 17 arms, yeah. and they're all half-functional. Lungs hanging out your body and you know, no feet and whatever. So you're going to see all these things, at least in the fossil record, and there's zero evidence of that. And then even in the miracle of, uh, of I mean, hopefully we're not going to get too far into this, but just sex in general. Uh, the, the fact that you have two genders that in a, in a complementary fashion evolve simultaneously and can pro- procreate uh, afterwards is, again, a mathematical just, I mean, I don't even know if calculations can even run that I high. I believe the... Uh... I believe the so now go back in there and talk about the one in a billion chance, and a billions to a billion chance, and just keep yeah, adding zeros. So I think that the odds of all these things lining up, you know, with the Earth having the perfect atmosphere and the perfect distance from the sun and water and all these things, you know, uh, I've I've heard the uh, I'd have to look this up, but I heard it was calculated that we it was a one in a ten to the ninety eighth power which is just literally exponentially greater than a mathematical impossibility. So it doesn't really make sense. Which means um, you have to have faith <laughs> that something so improbable <laughs> could actually occur. Yeah. Yeah. What you, what you might, what someone might call a miracle happens. Um, yeah. And the, and the other thing is too, is, you know, not to get into this whole, uh, we don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on the science of it. Cause none of us are scientists and we're not here to talk, uh, we're here to talk essentially men to men, blue collar to blue collar type thing. But bringing this around to like the Catholic side, you know, I heard actually recently at a Thanksgiving conversation after dinner uh, from a Protestant that um, we got onto creationist and he was deriding that uh, that belief. And he said, uh, you know, God didn't make the world in six days. A day to God is not uh, a day to you and me. And I can't help but think, uh, well, God created time, so you're telling me there's some sort of exchange rate now, like where he doesn't operate on the same time he just created? Like, um, yeah. So Genesis, six days, that's what he made it in. Uh, that, that It's not written as a parable. It's written as as a, uh, a creation story, a, an actual oral tradition. That's how it's written. And, I believe- uh, and so that's what we believe as Catholics. I believe we're actually told too in uh, scripture. I'll, I'll have to get the exact verse. I'll make sure to put it in the uh, the description of the video below. But uh, God tells us He's going to actually give us the truth, and He's not going to speak in riddles uh, in terms of the way that He's delivering everything to Moses. The only time he starts talking in parables is when he shows up in the flesh and then Christ says, I'm only going to talk this way because the people who believe me will know what I'm saying and everyone else is going to have no idea. So when we're looking it's at... It's that will... Yeah, it's that willfulness. Those who want to know, who want to learn, will learn. And those who wish to essentially avoid what I'm telling them will come up with any number of excuses. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then and you have later on Peter actually having to come up to bat and basically say, there's going to be people who will actually not believe anymore. They're going to challenge the account of Noah. They're going to challenge everything and try to say none of it actually happened. And excuse me for looking at saying, huh, maybe this was the time they were talking about when people will start denying everything. So, um, yeah, the, the, the point being here, God created us, and that's that. So moving on then, we want to now ask, Question number two, who is God actually? So we're looking at God now as the supreme being. From a Catholic standpoint, Catholic standpoint, we're looking at him having divine nature, so not like our uh, human nature at all, and that he has no beginning, he has no end. He's been there forever, infinitely perfect, which means in the end he's in exceptionally simple, but then has the capacity to make things so <laughs> crazily complex, maybe not, not crazy, but very, very complex regardless. So we look at then what's, what is his impact? He basically has a plan. He has a design and he decides this perfect being with a perfect plan. He wants to create a universe. He wants to create us. Um, I don't know. Where do you want to go with that, Jake? Uh, yeah. Who is God? He is the, uh, again, I mean, those the first question, second question, they're linked right there. He is the intelligent designer, um, the man with the plan, if you will, to, to put it simply. Uh, and not only you, you hit it, he's all perfect, he's all knowing, he's he's omniscient, but he's also not just, um, how, how do you say, he's, uh, he's not this pagan concept uh, that they, they had of their their deities um, or, or even how the Muslims view their God. We're not his playthings, right? He... He sets up a set of rules of what he says he will provide for us, what he will let us know, what he will tell us, this, that, and the other. And he holds himself accountable. He doesn't just like, we're, we're not just like, you know, he's not just this big toddler in a sandbox creating and destroying uh, at random. Uh, that's definitely not what we as Catholics believe. Yeah, and I think that, that builds on the issue that Luther starts to bring up where he and and the Muslims do the same thing where they start to challenge the virtue of God and say, well, because he's God, I mean, he can do whatever he wants. Um, yeah, I hear that all the time with Protestants. He's God, he can do what he, who am I to say he can't do that? And it's like, well, it has nothing to do with who you are to say he can't do it. God said he wouldn't do that. God says what he will and will not do and what he expects of us. He laid out the script and he is following it and he expects us to follow it. If we don't, there are consequences to that. But yeah, it's not just this, he wakes up one morning and just goes, ah, I think uh, I think I want a little mayhem in the world. Tornado, like, no, it's not how it works. And not to jump ahead, this is also the first introduction where you start to unravel the mystery of the Holy Trinity as far as mm -hmm. God the Father, then the Son incarnate, and then the Holy Ghost. And uh, to look at complexities, uh, I mean, look at the earth as a child. You know, you can look at the sky, look at the earth, you know, look around mom and dad and, and see simple systems. But as you grow and mature, as you, you know, eventually grow and mature in your faith, hopefully, you start to look at the subsystems that are involved. It's not just the air, quote-unquote the air. You're looking at the, the chemical makeup of all of this. You're looking at formation of clouds, weather patterns. It just work yourself down to the, you know, the anthill. It's, it's so many things working together. In, in seemingly, I think to the people, the non-believers, it's just a series, series upon series of chaos you know, just existing and coexisting, but really it's just a, it's the most fabulous orchestra you've ever seen in your life. And you're just one piece of it, one note. But 
this is definitely the intro into much, I think, greater questions later on. Oh, yeah. And the orchestra analogy is great. J.R.R. Tolkien. And oh, absolutely. Brilliant. Yeah, Tolkien reference all the way. Yep. He went down that exact road. So when Iluvatar starts to create uh, everything in Middle Earth, he uses the exact same analogy in terms of God sets forth a symphony and everything is perfect the way that it was designed. So Tolkien's great Catholic, by the way, and always recommend uh, reading Lord of the Rings. So we'll move on from there. And now, so getting by God, who is God, the fact that he made us. Well, now, next question being, why did God make us? And this is another thing that we have issues with Protestants on in terms of they don't understand justice of God. That's why they think that God can change what he does from time to time. And it's wherever he wants to go, whenever he wants to go. No, no, God already had a plan. His plan was perfect whenever he conceived it, before he even creates any of us, before he creates the universe. And then when that plan now gets set in motion, he didn't just create it to just see what was going to happen and just let us all run into each other and then collapse. Or so we could randomly all be forced to go to heaven with him. And then, you know, hell is empty except for Hitler and Stalin and and whoever else, those other couple of people that are probably down there. No, no, that doesn't make any sense. In the end, why does God create us? He's got a purpose. There's, there's work for all of us that we're supposed to do. There are virtues we're supposed to emulate. And in, in the grand scheme, looking from Christ talking to us, we're all supposed to do his will. That's the whole point. So if you get down to the core, the, the catechism actually talks through God making us to show forth goodness and share everlasting happiness in heaven. Because we have to remember that the earth in and of itself, we're created here. And that, that's where we're beginning to take in and understand God. But this temporal fleeting place where we currently reside here on this rock is going to be over at some point, And it's going to be over in a flash compared to eternity. I believe when uh, Augustine starts to summarize it, his analogy that he uses is taking a teaspoon and emptying the ocean one teaspoon at a time until it's all gone and then refilling it. And then after that's all done, you haven't even passed whatever the equivalent of a day would be in eternity. So it, no, it, our, our purpose has to be focused on eternity. And what is it going to be like to go day in, day out in eternity with God? And what does he want us to do? It's to emulate everything that he gave us, to acknowledge what he gave us, to see his perfection, uh, and to basically show everyone else what God is like. There's no way that they can understand what being Catholic is if we don't want to live like a Catholic. So he's, he sets us up to be Catholic, to, to emulate him, and ultimately, as Peter says, to share in his divinity. So, yeah, virtue and grace and all these things come to us, and we have to align our wills and whatever. We'll, we'll get into those in uh, future episodes here, as they are later on in the catechism. But we need to make, sh- make sure that everyone's aware, like, our job here is to glorify God. Never forget him. Wake up every single day thinking about God first. The reason we offer prayers to God is because he gave us everything and he made us to make sure that we proclaimed it. So as we pray to him, we're giving back his glory. As we go out there and tell other people how awesome God is and how perfect and how efficient and how loving he is, all of that is glorifying him so that they can continue to do it. And it's this infinite perpetuation of everything that he has made from the beginning. So it's it's a really cool purpose. Brian, you have anything else to add on to that well hold on pete or brian yeah. here here's a question that we hear all the time but doesn't that sound boring to just be in heaven all the time <laughs> God? isn't that pretty boring yeah, where's all my virgins jake I, I, yeah man i 
you know, where, where's the party? Where's the fun? Where's the roller coasters? Like, that doesn't sound very fun to just be praying all the time. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that's so short-sighted is that you're talking about an infinite being that is beyond our comprehension. Our minds and eyes cannot possibly contemplate what lies in store for us. Paul, I believe, says there's no way we could even picture what's ahead in heaven. And that said, heaven is only a creation of God's. <laughs> so it's like, he's saying, you can't even contemplate God's creation, let alone contemplate the eternal maker himself in his triune existence there. So uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we can't even contemplate that. And no one apparently of all these people who say, man, that sounds so boring, has ever stopped for a minute to just look at clouds. <laughs> just look at the clouds. Yep. You could sit there for hours taking in clouds and watching the shapes change and knowing that you'll never see the same shape twice, even if you sat there for a hundred years your entire life. And that's just a cloud. Again, another creation. What would it be like to participate in the beatific vision? And for anyone who's not familiar with that term, that is our sight directly of God. We see him. So when you're in the presence of God and seeing God, the actual being with no beginning and no end, who contemplated, who conceived, who fabricated everything that's out there, and we can look at him, how mind-blowing is that going to be? And he's infinite. Well, <laughs> like, well, and the other thing is, too, is like, is, you know, Everybody keeps talking like, yeah, well, if I'm in heaven, I want to be doing, name whatever human activity. I'm going to be mowing the lawn. Heaven. Yeah, like, the. I think a, a simple way to kind of relate, though, to people who can't really grasp the, I mean, none of us can truly grasp the idea of heaven. But, you know, a way to relate it is, I mean, think about, think about a time in your life where everything's been perfect. You have a great job or boss, everything in your head. Or, or just an afternoon, maybe, where everything's going well, your sports team's going, and you just, you have no anxiety. You have nothing on the mind. You don't have a bill due. You don't have a, a project. You're just, you're just content and happy. You, that's what heaven is only to the nth, nth degree. Like, right. you're just, there's no mental anguish, and you're just completely full of love. And the other thing is, too, by the way, um, speaking of the whole, isn't it boring to just know you're supposed to worship God, like, you know, I don't know who said this, but it, I've, I always found it very true for anybody who served in the military or was on a varsity sports team or, or whatever it is, or just had close friends. You know, I heard someone once say, it's not so much the, the knowledge that your friends have your back that is comforting. It's the knowledge that you have their back, right? Because you're essentially, it makes you happy to know that there is a being in proximity to you that you are willing to commit yourself to. That's where we get our happiness from, not the idea that, you know, we've got this bodyguard that's going to do whatever it is we need him to do to save us, but the idea that, like, you are, there is something greater than yourself that you are willing to, to do for. That's where in everything, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenthood, whether it's, you know, community service, like, that's, that's where we as humans get true joy is actually the giving of ourselves to another. You mean having um, a purpose? Yeah, exactly. Having a purpose and not just existing for our own pleasure. I think that's the big thing these days, right, is to to just bring in all these carnal pleasures, these parallels that we, we tend to understand here. And whether it's Valhalla, we're just bonging beers for eternity, right, or Islam, where we're just fornicating ourselves into eternity. 
Yeah, these are all real low-level, beastly pursuits, and I mean they're easy to grasp, you know. But these pleasures are all fleeting for anyone who's ever lived like a modern hedonist lifestyle. Don't don't lie to yourselves and don't try to lie to me about how fulfilling these lifestyles are. Eventually, they run their course, and you seek something better and something deeper, more I mean, meaningful. How Every- many how many entertainers, movie stars, musicians can you name off the top of your head that? were completely and utterly tormented, even though they had every worldly possession that one could want, and they just didn't have a purpose, and ultimately led to them taking their own life, unfortunately. Well, and the thing is, is like all of us here, too, just again, to reiterate kind of from the, the intro episode, we are converts or reverts here. So we've actually all lived that lifestyle. So speaking from first hand experience of all the failures in there is nothing that can compare to the loneliness of all of that lifestyle in that if you can't even grasp the beauty of the beatific vision and that union with God of that you have not only a purpose, but you are completely fulfilled, compare that to the hedonist lifestyle where you live for the next meal or the next uh, rush of whatever that event is or the next, you know, a little partnership you can work out with uh, whatever individual you want to work out in whatever capacity these days. It's the 21st century. Um, the loneliness after the lights go out and the music turns off and the people go home and you have to be there all by yourself. There's nothing in terms of that. That, that, that to be, I mean, that's probably the best way to put it. It's you nothing. Become a, you become a, jump, a junkie to stimulation. You crave the loud music. You crave the wild nightlife. You crave the, the physical touch and gratification of another human or your own uh, self. You you crave, you know, the next buzz or rush. Or and the second it is. time is never, yeah, the second time is never as good as the first. And then and the when third it all time stops, is worse than that. Yeah, exactly. When it all stops and you're left there in silence, which, you know, quite a few uh, church fathers have talked about, like, and even Cardinal Strauss said the other day, like, we should be seeking silence because that's what God is. It's silence. Um and when the silence happens there and you're just face to face with all the bad things you've done and you realize on a deep, deep primal level that you just did things that were not beneficial to you, to those around you or to the world, greater world in general, um, and you can't cope with it. And so what do you do? All right, I, I just need to stimulate myself again uh, to block that out for just a, at least another minute or two, whatever it is. And like you said, the second time, it's not as good as the first, the third, it's even worse and, and so on and so forth. And what are we doing? We're making hell for ourselves because what, what have we been told about the visions of hell? Uh, that there is no silence. You never get break, a break. You never get a rest. You're constantly being tormented. And so, yeah, I think that we're, again, going back to why are we made? We're there to emulate the virtues that we're given and hopefully to share in the beatific vision. Uh, we're not made to just be thrill seekers, adrenaline junkies, uh, you know, partiers, fornicators, any of that. Anybody who would ever say like, oh, I was put on this earth to, you know, to, to ride roller life. coasters. Yeah, experience life. You only live once. Woo. Uh, anybody says that, and it's, it kind of goes like, man, when you're 80, like, you can't, that, that, that stuff, it's so fleeting, and yet it's something, it's something that we all desire, you know, is that spike, and we're constantly fighting those temptations. But, but everybody, whether they want to admit it or not, everyone knows that it's not fulfilling. But to circle back to what you were saying, Jake, there's perfect moments and there's every once in a while rare perfect days. You get that glimpse, that peek behind the curtain of what a true content 
you know, feelings yep. are like, and you get to experience that and just yep. take that earthly you don't peak. Feel, and, yeah, you don't feel jealousy. You don't feel anxiety, no mental anguish. or um, You're just you're just at peace with what is happening in your life, regardless that, you know, then again, that's the whole thing is the idea that if you are in heaven, right? And again, there's still a hierarchy in heaven. Some, some of the saints are, are higher than others, but nobody cares because there is no jealousy because everyone's cup is full regardless of how big or small it is. And I think then that leads us well, talking about this whole uh, emptiness that's uh, felt by the worldly among us who don't believe in God, or at least don't understand the full conception of God, so they fall into the pagan mindsets or the Protestant mindsets and don't understand that, yeah, you know, when you're actually down and out and you feel really bad is one of those moments when God's actually closest. That's kind of a Catholic thing that a lot of um, other people just don't understand. There's no way they can comprehend it. So looking there, the next question here, what must we do to gain happiness of heaven? In here, it's all about knowing, loving, and serving God in this world. Again, going back to what's the purpose of everything, meaning of life, God. So if we live everything for God, the infinite, guess what? That hole inside of us that everyone knows they have when they feel their worst, they can fill it with God. So in the end, all of his perfection, his infinity, his divinity, all of that's right there. It's going to mass and going and saying prayers and contemplating him and being around other people who know what it is to be godly or to be virtuous or in a minimum, even if we're, we're still all having troubles, like none of us is perfect. We're all still sinning and still trying to get out of our own way. But you see the glimpses amongst the holy people or people at least trying to be holy of God. And in the end, there's nothing more filling. In terms of this earth, the, the best you can get is the Eucharist. Beyond that, it's now into prayers and devotionals. And beyond that, you're looking at where are the faithful and where can I find them? Because in the end, right there is how you gain happiness to heaven. But Yeah, like with the last question, why did God make us? Well, he made us to join him in heaven. How do we get to heaven with this question? You know, worldly detachment. That's essentially what it boils down to. We're understanding that this life is fleeting, that the things that, that our, our base nature's desire are not necessarily good for us uh, or conductive to uh, what we should be seeking and what we should be seeking is God's will. Align our, our will with his will, and that means forsaking the attachments of this world. That doesn't mean you can't have ice cream. That's not what that means. It means that ice cream should not be anywhere near a priority in your life. I think like all great questions, there's a lot to unpack on this one and we could easily unpack. What is it to know? What is it to love? What is it to serve? And I mean, like I said before in the, the previous episode, there's a way more people more eminently qualified than myself to answer those, but this isn't a trick answer. It's not a trick question. Conveniently, if you're Catholic, the ordinary means of salvation, this is not a very popular statement today. The ordinary means of salvation is the Holy Catholic Church. And as long as you're attached to the church and you are, I mean, through, you, you have to be in a state of grace and profess all the church professes, you're in. You know, to know, love, and serve God is done through the church. It's done through the sacraments, through the mass, through the liturgies, ancient liturgies. And it's done in a way that's, believe it or not, is is very linear and rational as you grow and age and mature through your life. So to know, love, and serve God, the easiest answer is to go to church, learn your catechism, learn that God is there, learn his sacrifice, learn why the sacraments exist, why he gave them to us, and their efficacy, and 
and visit them often. And you'll be given the grace. A lot of this is all through grace. And you have to reach out and touch God. Yeah, the logic of it all is actually what brought me into the faith to convert in the first place. Is that as it all, all the different pieces all start to come together and you can now see the clarity of the doctrines that are being taught and the basis, the, the reasoning, the justifications behind them all in terms of how we're supposed to behave. The fact that I can't just sit there and go and say, I want a million dollars, God, and I pray for that, and then I get all angry when I don't get it. Or when I do get it, I think, well, the only reason God gave this to me is because he wants me to be comfortable in this life and just experience how awesome it is and be in heaven already or anything nonsensical like that. Like, Whenever I realize, like, oh, you don't pray for that because it doesn't actually get you anything in eternity, everything started to like come together with, oh, okay, so I got to actually suffer like Christ suffered, and I, I have to go look towards heaven for my eternal happiness, not to the, the earth. This is going to go away. I'm going to lose it. Is Joel Olstein yeah. wrong? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, jo- so uh, I think I'd like to bring up, too, um, and Brian, you brought up a good point. Like, when I, when I was saying, like, when I was saying earthly detachment, I'm not talking like being a Buddhist, just sitting there in a robe, like, in a Zen-like state. Like, that's not what earthly detachment means. Earthly detachment is is knowing that, like, hey, I want a million dollars, or I want that brand new jet, uh, and the understanding that, like, that's not going to do me any good to have it in this life. It does me no good in as far as elevating me closer to heaven. So, yes, the sacraments, the church, is where you come to find God's will. And, again, aligning yourself with that is your surefire way. But outside of the church, you're definitely not going to find the sacraments. But unless you get struck off a horse like Saul, or like Paul did, with a lightning bolt, uh, you're not. You're probably not going to find God's will. Either. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be judged by our works, so that we can gain that happiness in heaven. So Matthew seven twenty one, and again, it is not based on our works, man's works. It's not that at all. It's Christ's works that He does through us by the powers of His grace and our cooperation of our will. If we do all that together, then everything works out. But it's not just, I have a belief, and all of a sudden I'm saved. No, like, I get saved out of the camp of Satan through baptism, which we will cover here in a future episode. And ultimately, the only way I can ensure salvation in the end that Paul feared for, even with himself, will be through the works that we have to do. So again, make sure that we're doing everything to glorify God in the meantime. But how do we do it? So this is where the next question comes in of going, from whom do we learn to know, love, and serve God. And the answer here going, I know everyone will be surprised, Jesus Christ and the church is where we actually learn how to do all this stuff. Now, I know that second answer may surprise Protestants who looked solely towards Christ and the Bible that the Catholic Church gave them and tell us that only, you know, Christ is the one who taught it and we just read the Gospels and all that. But in the end, it's really the church. Like, even Christ tells us that the church is where we're supposed to turn when we start to go off the rails, like if we have to try to bring a brother back and like so effectively spiritually wounded on the battlefield and I got to bring him back up and get him on the right track, I'm supposed to try to correct him. If he doesn't listen, we take a few of us and we all try to correct him. And if he still doesn't listen, we take him to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, the church basically says, uh, basically, sorry, man, you're out. I can't do anything for you until you decide to cooperate. That's the gist of Matthew 18, 15 to 17. And if we don't have the church, 
We don't have consistency. We don't have teachings. There's not an easy way to be unified if every guy out there gets to be his own pope and come up with his own philosophy and his own interpretation and just keep winging it all the way and say, no, 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 today my philosophy is that all I have to do is eat pizza and I go to heaven. Well, there's probably a denomination out there that does that these days. Who knows? Overall, though, the only way that everything can go that far off in terms of what Christianity is and how many different flavors there are is when people don't understand they all need to learn from one single unified body that is the church within which is no contradictory teaching. Numbers tells us that. Titus tells us that. God doesn't lie. Everything that's in there is absolute truth. The church holds the truth itself, again, Paul tells us that in the first letter to Timothy, verse 3.15, and he also tells us the wisdom is also kept within the church. And that's what he says in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. And Paul goes on in Ephesians 5 to sit there and talk about the church being the faithful, inerrant bride of Christ, the groom. And Christ gives all these marriage uh, examples, these parables, where really as he's talking through it, he's talking about his bride, his church. Church is actually what keeps us straight. So as Catholics, we should be relieved to know that the church actually, in terms of its teachings and infallibility, man, we should be really thankful that Christ gave that to us because overall it does make our uh, lives a lot simpler. Brian? Oh, yeah, no, I'm a, I can be an idiot most of the times throughout my day and definitely over the course of my life. And to have finally an institution that is infallible, that can point the way, even when, you know, I'll be honest, when I was younger, there's certain topics I just never looked into because A, they didn't interest me and B, really just didn't pertain to, to that point in my life. And as things arise and you need solid questions answered, you know, these things are passed down magisterially and to get to actually there's a piece of scripture here it says he who hears you hears me Luke 10:16 to know that that through apostolic succession through the magisterial teachings through tradition we can reach back directly to our lord and see the authority that is placed before us and above us to guide us in these things um, it really does kind of take the stress off of being your own protestant your own pope and and trying to solve all the world's problems from you know your your bedside table or wherever you sit and read so I find a ton of comfort in that. There's another thing about that verse, which is really telling as well, that completely starts to blow up Protestant notions of, I just go straight to Christ. I don't talk to my guardian angel. I don't talk to the saints. I don't, I don't talk to anybody. I don't yeah, need a priest. Because he's, he's my drinking buddy. Yeah, it, it's weird because in the end, he's like, anyone who hears you hears me. Who's he talking about there? Why is Christ telling all of us reading that scripture there that there are other people who will speak for him. And maybe, just maybe, I should probably be listening to them, whoever those people are in that authority who hold that seat above me. And that's kind of a big deal, that, that obedience and submissive peace that Catholics have to hold through thick and thin, bearing our crosses and walking that tough road when I got to deal with prelates who decide, I don't want to follow the rules anymore, and I'm just going to go off the deep end and not listen to the church. That's a cross I get to bear. And then I get to listen to Protestants tell me how bad the church is because of one bad bishop. Strangely enough, they still follow Christ, even though Judas actually turned. But, you know, that's neither here nor there, apparently, to them. So it, overall, the authority that the church holds has been given to us by Christ, has been communicated to us by Christ, and perhaps we should listen to him. I don't know if you have anything else to add, Jake. I mean, no, you guys really hit it. Uh, look, there's there's not nine ways to skin this cat, right? There's one. And I believe, I'm trying to think, I think it was Dr. Taylor Marshall uh, that said, uh, 
in one of his episodes not too long ago, when talking about the the idea of Bishop Barron when he said uh, in the Ben Shapiro interview, he said, you know, well, Christ, of course, is the privileged way. It's a pretty absurd notion to think that, yeah, that's just a privileged way. But, but you know, there's other ways to do it, guys. I mean, essentially what you're saying for those people who supposedly make it into heaven without being a part of the universal church, Christ died for no reason for those people, apparently. Like, he, he served no purpose because they just made it on their own. Uh, so that's a pretty obnoxious thing that I've heard multiple people push, whether it's Protestants or, or other people. But uh, yeah, like there's one way. And again, thank goodness we have the church. I can't remember which one of you all said it, but thank goodness we have the church because I don't have to be right. I can be wrong. And I can have, like you're saying, Pete, I can have brothers in Christ be like, hey, man, you're messing it up. And even if I'm still too stupid to get it then, you know, bringing me to the church and being like, this is what the church says. And I can go, this is awesome. I get to say I'm wrong to no consequence outside of saving my own soul. Like, you know, I don't have to, it's not all on me. I don't have to be right. Every time I step up, you know, in my, my new, whatever first Baptist church thing that I set up, like, you know, I don't have to be the one that's coming up with these, these awesome revelations. I can look to the church fathers, to the saints, to Christ himself and see what it is I'm supposed to be saying, doing, and thinking. And I think that's the the takeaway here is to be Catholic is to be corrected and to learn and to grow. And uh, the only way we can do that with the virtues of humility and, I mean, and listening. Yeah, it's right there. Humility right there. I mean, the, the first sin ever committed is, is pride, you know, and like to be corrected. Nobody likes it. It can be the most minuscule thing, but nobody likes being corrected. Uh, it's just when you have that initial reaction of, you know, wincing and like, oh, you know, you want to grit your teeth. How relieving is it, though, to be like, to look in the mirror and go, you know what? I am wrong. And that's, I, I don't know about you all, but that's a huge weight off my shoulders when I know that I've been, that I was in the wrong and I get to go, that, yeah, that's not it. Thank goodness God and his grace uh, allowed me to put somebody here to correct me. And now it leads us into where do we find the chief truths taught by Jesus Christ through the Catholic Church? Another thing given us by the successors to the Apostles is uh, in the Catholic Church, we have the Apostles' Creed. Quite helpful, mind you. And that actually goes into the uh, the last question itself, or the lesson is actually the Apostles' Creed itself. So I'm not sure how many people are familiar with it, but I know that when I came into the Church, the amount of time spent on that prayer was significant. And when we actually look at the Catechism itself, the Catechism actually... Uh, very logically, again, is breaking down every single statement within that prayer and then putting it into its own lesson to actually allow us to expand on it and to open up and to understand what it means to be a Catholic. And so if we disagree with anything that is taught by the church, unfortunately, that places us in error. And anything that we teach or do that is contrary to the church is Heresy. I know that's not a fun word at the moment with the modernist Catholics and the relativist Catholics uh, and the liberal Catholics of the world today. But unfortunately, whether we like it or not, God is now and forever, always has been, always will be, and he's not changing. So anything he told us is wrong is still wrong. We, we have to accept every single thing that they give us uh, in, in the creed itself. So in the end, when we talk about things like 
Jesus dying and being buried and going to hell and ascending, we can't sit here and try and like explain those away and turn them into some weird naturalist, logical, scientific. Well, technically speaking, if you looked at this thing, it wouldn't—he wouldn't necessarily have died per se. Or try and do Nestorian things where we sit there and say he didn't really die. Or this, ugh. there are so many things the church has dealt with over the past two thousand years to try and break it all down, uh, to make sure that we can defend and understand what that creed means. God is sending us a message in the creed, and he sent it through his apostles. That's kind of a key tenant of what we are as Christians. I don't know, uh, Jake, you have any uh, thoughts on that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, like, the Apostles' Creed is, I mean, it's the rubric. It's right there. It's the, it's the easy cheat sheet looking at it. You know what I mean? It's, it's got pretty much everything summed up there. And I'd also like to say, too, is like, you know, whether it's the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or or any of the encyclicals, that's not the church making up stuff as it goes along. The dogmas of the faith are there set in stone. Everything that you're seeing is essentially a reaction to heresies. They're clarifications, right? When the heresies come up, the church goes, all right, clearly something wasn't communicated properly. And that's where you're getting things like, you know, the Nicene Creed uh, later on. Um, so yeah, the Apostle Creed is awesome because it's a it's a quick down and dirty of what it means to follow the Catholic tenets of the faith. And also, again, it's, you know, it's, it's, but this isn't something that someone after Jesus made up like, oh, to be Catholic, yeah, they're not add-ons, they're just clarifications. That's an important thing to talk about because Protestants love to talk about, oh, well, all the different popes have just been adding to the faith and now it's barely recognizable. No, 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 that's not true. The church has clarified the, the teachings of Jesus over the years when errors have arisen, widespread errors, whether it's Nestorianism or Arianism or whatever it is, but at no time does the church add to the faith. Deposit of the faith is faith always has been and always will be. Yeah, John Henry Newman, so now sainted, actually talks about in his uh, essay on the development of Christian doctrine, the fact that in the early times, we didn't actually have to spell out all of these details because the apostles were just speaking about it and the christians of that time those priests and those lay persons already knew it so there's like well why would you write it down everyone yeah. already knows and then what happens is, is then some offshoot some random guy usually a priest mind you like luther or donatus a handful of other individuals nestorius as another example come up with this weird cockamamie scheme of some deviation that now inserts this incorrect corruption of doctrine and thought to the point where the church now has to step in and go, whoa, pump the brakes. We're going to correct this. Yeah. They meet in council. And Clearly issue. we missed, we, we skipped a few lessons. Uh, somewhere. Okay. So, all right, back to the drawing board here, guys. Uh, so, all right, let's spell it out for you. Yeah. The, the main thing is filling in all of the, non-written things that had been spoken. So even though it looks like 2,000 years, oh, and then the Catholic Church said that Mary was assumed into heaven. No, they, they have the entire time from the moment she was assumed into heaven. It's just, it took 1,900 years before there were enough people that were claiming otherwise to the point where the Church actually has to write down officially and say, look, yeah, definitively yeah. speaking, you are not Catholic if you don't believe this. We needed to make sure to tell you because enough people started to act like this wasn't true. Yeah, not to go into spiritual warfare, you know, we're going we're gonna to get to demons later episode, but, you know, the the idea is we know the demons, the way they work, they, they act like lawyers, um, and there's such a thing as diabolic disorientation. So, essentially, it's just hammering out those, those uh, areas in which 
people can be disoriented by diabolic force to start twisting and veering from the true the, the correct path it's the church having it's just essentially just riding the ship the road's always been there sometimes we just had to, the church has to build uh you know little handrails to help some people along the way brian you have anything on this one no i think this is out of all the creeds the church has this is the shortest it's the most to the point uh children learn it from the beginning because it really does contain it encapsulates the real key tenets of what it is to be Catholic. And even the real controversial stuff is buried there. If you pay attention to it, you know, uh, our Lord is born of the Virgin Mary. She's perpetually Virgin, not to spoil alert for any of those that haven't really got that far in the theology yet. Uh, the fact that he did rise from the dead. These are things that we must believe in order to be Catholic and, and attached to the church. Uh, community of saints, meaning saints pray for us. We pray to them. We don't worship them, but Again, um, we find our Protestant, what they call them today, separated brethren. That's the, that's the ecumenical word of the you know, <laughs> du jour. Something like that. But it's, it's one of these things where we, we don't water this down. If you believe in heaven, you believe in eternal life, you believe people are there, well, we're body of Christ, we're all connected. It's not, these aren't terribly complicated concepts. And then life everlasting. Um, so, I mean, really, it's so simple, a child can get it. And yet, at the same time, it, as we kind of alluded to earlier in the chapter, it's so complex and so nuanced and so deep. As you unravel this onion, it literally could take an eternity, if you think about it, just briefly, to get through it all. So that will do it for our first episode on the Baltimore Catechism. So next week, we'll hit episode two. Make sure to subscribe to the channel. Uh, hit us up with any questions in the comments section below. And we will add links to uh, any of the stuff we talked about uh, today. So in the meantime, uh, thanks for listening. And as always, St. Joseph, pray, pray for, for us. us. Pray for us. Thanks. Nice.